Have you ever been given a gift that uh, once you got it, you were kind of like, well, that's great, but uh, what is it? Um, this gift came into our house when I was a kid, and I don't remember whether it was for a birthday or Christmas or what, but I do remember thinking at the time, gee, that's great and everything, but, uh, you know, what is it? Well, it's the Popeil's Pocket Fisherman is what it is. If you open the hidden handle tackle box and extend the retractable pole, you can clearly see that this is the very latest in bait casting technology. Oh, really now? Well, this gift ended up finding its place in the trunk of the family car, and there's two things I can tell you about it for sure. First is that no fish of any memorable size was ever caught with it. And second, that uh, by the time it went to that great garage sale in the sky, it still had that original kinked up fishing line in it that prevented you from being able to cast it over 10 feet. <laughs> wow. Well, in the same way, I got a gift that not long ago caused me to pause and say, wow, that's great. But uh, what is it? My wife and I were getting ready for Sunday services at the wonderful church we helped start down in Clarksville, Tennessee, when a sergeant assigned to the 101st Airborne came up to me and presented me with the gift of this T-shirt that I'm wearing this morning. And I said, wow, that's great, but you know, what is it? Well, Sergeant James Bavery was this guy's name, and by this point in his military career, he had been on like two or three missions to both Iraq and Afghanistan. And part of his duties was to go door to door looking for bad guys. And while they were out in the towns of Iraq, they would notice this sign spray painted on various houses throughout the towns. And when the soldiers inquired as to the meaning of this obvious graffiti, the translators who were with them said that this Arabic letter corresponds to the English letter N. And it was used by Islamic extremists to identify the occupants of those houses as being Christians. You see, the jihadi types called Christians Nazarenes because they follow the one who is from Nazareth, namely Jesus. You see, these Christian houses were being singled out by the Shia Muslim militias for harassment, extortion, illegal arrests, kidnapping, and even murder. Christians today living in the Nineveh plains of Iraq are being forced to leave their homes and a popular saying among them is either carry your suitcase out of town or be carried out in a coffin. The population of Christians within Iraq prior to the 2003 U.S. invasion was estimated to be 1.4 million, and today it is dwindled down to 200,000. The Rangers among the U.S. Army actually designed this t-shirt as a message to these jihadi persecutors. In effect, the shirt is saying, hey, if you're looking for Christians to mess with, you come and mess with me. I'm not hiding. I'm not hiding. 
you mess with me and leave these poor defenseless people alone. Sergeant Bavery thought that I would appreciate the message conveyed by the shirt. I certainly did. And I still do. Today we're in week 20, we're in Acts chapter 24. And um, Acts chapter 24 is uh, positioned in a part of Acts where the three previous chapters have centered on the Apostle Paul's final trip to Jerusalem. And during that final trip, a group of Jews from the Roman province of Asia pounce on Paul and they try to beat him to death right in the middle of the city. And they would have accomplished that had it not been for the intervention of a Roman regimental commander by the name of Claudius Lysias, who took his men and saved the apostle Paul's life. Now, Paul informs the regimental commander that he also is a Roman citizen. And from that point on, Claudius offers Paul both the protection and the due process rights that Roman law requires for its citizens. So when Claudius later learned of an assassination plot against the Apostle Paul involving more than 40 men who had taken a solemn oath not to eat or drink, Lysias gathered a force of nearly 500 Roman soldiers and under the cover of nightfall took Paul from Jerusalem to the Roman governor Felix who lived in Caesarea Philippi, 65 miles north of Jerusalem. Well, chapter 24 begins just 12 days after Lysias had saved the apostle Paul's life. And now the chief priests and the elders from Jerusalem have traveled all the way down to Caesarea in order to appeal to the governor Felix. You see, they wanted the governor to send Paul back to Jerusalem with them because they had actually conspired with the 40 assassins to have the apostle Paul killed. And by now, these 40 guys really wanted to get the job done because <laughs> they were getting seriously hungry and seriously thirsty. I know this sounds crazy, but I kind of feel sorry for these 40 assassins, don't you? I mean, you know how men get carried away. It's late at night and they're planning on how they're going to whack the apostle Paul. And one guy trying to sound tough says, well, I'm not going to eat anything until he's dead. And the rest say, well, we're not going to eat anything either. And then another guy trying to sound even tougher says, well, I'm not going to drink anything until the deed's done. And by the end of the night, all 40 of these men had sworn to God that they weren't going to eat or drink anything until the deed was done. So they went to bed that night thinking, well, this will be easy. We'll just whack Paul by 10 in the morning, and by noon, we'll all get together at Sal's downtown Jewish delicatessen and celebrate the deed over some bagels, cream cheese, and fried mutton, right? Well, can you imagine their shock when they woke up the next morning and discovered that 470 armed Roman soldiers had whisked Paul away to a town that was over 60 miles away? Well, it must have been a pretty tough morning for these 40 guys. <laughs> so here are the chief priests and the elders in Caesarea, and they went out and they've hired them a good lawyer. The lawyer's name is Tertullus. And in verse 5 of chapter 24, we hear Tertullus giving the official charge against the apostle Paul. And he says this. He said, we have found this man a plague. 
One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Gareth Reese in his commentary on Acts said, this is the first instance of the use of the term Nazarene, expressive of contempt, to label the followers of Jesus, who himself had this reproachful term cast at him. You see, Nazareth was considered to be a nowhere place populated by a people of no repute. In that sense, it was kind of like Advance, Indiana, right? <laughs> a two-bit little town filled with meth heads and inbreds. You know what I'm talking about. Ah, listen, I grew up in this area. I've heard the stories, and so have some of you. So don't act all high and mighty here. Well, this is the reputation that Nazareth had. I remember uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, remember how Philip heard Jesus, and he was so impressed that he ran to get his best friend, Nathaniel. He said, you've got to come hear this Jesus from Nazareth. And in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel asked, can anything good come from there? And Simon, as you read the Gospels, you will find the enemies of Jesus often bringing up the place of his upbringing as a way to insult Jesus. And I just find it fascinating, don't you, that this same term of contempt is used even today in that same part of the world to designate we who are followers of Jesus. You see, in their eyes, we're all just a bunch of Nazarenes. And the world would be better off if we too were just extinguished. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but an article dated April 20th of this year in Christianity Today says that 2.4 million Christians have been martyred since the turn of the century. 2.4 million have been martyred since the turn of the century. I first became aware of this through a February 24, 2018 article in the Irish Times. The article was about the Colosseum in Rome being lit red to warn the world of this attack that is going on against members of the Christian faith. The uh, Colosseum, as you see, is the place in history where Christians were fed to lions in the days of the apostles. And it served as a fitting location to warn the world of this wave of persecution that's going on against members of the Christian faith all over this planet. Now, so far in this country, we have been protected from martyrdom itself. But do you know that we have been experiencing a recent wave of attacks against our places of worship? You know, much of the riots that have been going on as of late really has nothing to do with racial injustice. There is something more sinister at work. An article by Valerie Richardson dated July 15th of this year in the Washington Times has this title. Listen to the title. No Place for God, Left-Wing Protesters Turn Focus to Churches as Vandalism and Arson Escalate. 
On May 31st of this year, the St. John's Episcopal Church in downtown Washington, D.C. was set on fire, a fire that burned the parish house in part of the nursery of the church building before being put out by firefighters. President Trump called attention to this attack because of the historic nature of the church. This church is actually called the Church of the Presidents because every president since James Madison, our fourth president, has attended at least one worship service there with his family. And all modern presidents have went to a prayer meeting in this building before being inaugurated into that office. And so it was appropriate for the current one occupying the presidency to call attention to the attack waged against this building. Now today, you can't really see the fire damage when you walk past. All you can see is just the plywood that was erected to protect the structure from further damage. But I want to tell you that's not the case with respect to the fire damage inflicted on the San Gabriel Mission Church in San Gabriel, California on July 11th of this year. In the early morning hours, this 249-year-old mission church was set on fire. And as you can see from that picture, there's no amount of plywood a person could use to cover up the damage that was done to it. And on that same day, July 11th, on the opposite coast, in Ocala, Florida, a 24-year-old man drove his car through the front door of the Queen of Peace Catholic Church. And after ramming through the front door, he took gasoline and poured it all over the foyer area of the church and set it on fire while there were worshipers inside the building. And here's a picture of the damage done to that church. And you know, churches are not just being set on fire. Vandals are also painting threatening graffiti on church buildings as well. On July 17th, the St. Joseph's Catholic Church in New Haven, Connecticut, was vandalized with both anarchist and satanic symbols. Now here I have centered on the pentagram that was painted on that church building, which reminds me. Do you know why the pentagram, the five-pointed inverted star, is considered to be a satanic symbol? Well, because it is a pictogram of a goat's head, as this guy's poster clearly illustrates. You see, the image of a goat as a sign for a Satanist is derived from a couple of places, but one of them is from the teachings of Jesus about himself in Matthew, the 25th chapter. Jesus' favorite self-title was the Son of Man. Listen to what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But notice what he says in verse 21. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared. For the devil and his angels. You see, by using the symbol of the goat, the Satanist is saying, 
I don't want to be one of Jesus' sheep on the last day. I intend to be one of the goats on his left-hand side. Now, can you imagine a more outrageous statement than that? The guy carrying the poster that we just looked at had a quote from Satan taken from Dante's Inferno. In that work, Satan is pictured as saying, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, serve who? King Jesus. That's who. You see, that's how much these people hate Jesus. They want to be thrown out far away from him when the end of all things come. Rightly understood, that's sobering, isn't it? That's shocking. That's startling. Well, in the same spirit, look what they did to this statue of Jesus on the grounds of the Good Shepherd Catholic Church in Miami, Florida on July 15th of this year. I mean, this is what they think of our Good Shepherd. And this is what they think of we as sheep as well. Or check out this statue in a church in El Paso, Texas, just three weeks ago. Other desecrations have taken place in Chattanooga, in Queens, Boston, Sacramento, and presumably coming to a place of worship in a town near you. I saw an interview not long ago with Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York, in which he said that after a number of these church attacks happened, he got a call from a rabbi friend of his. Now, you know what a rabbi is, right? Rabbi is a preacher, Jewish preacher of a Jewish synagogue. Well, this rabbi called him up and said, you need to be careful, you and all your Christian friends, and don't simply dismiss these attacks as being random freaks. You need to be careful. And if you think about it, isn't this the same type of thing that was going on around Europe in the mid-1930s to uh, synagogues? especially in the, the context of Germany. We all know what happened then, don't we? Well, the question today is, how should we as Christians respond? So the specific question I want us to ask today is this, what should our message be at this time in history when the enemies of Christ and his church are surrounding, well, even us? Well, Acts, the 24th chapter gives us a chance to see the Apostle Paul's example and to hear his message before a crowd of unbelievers that wanted to see him dead along with all the members of the sect he was leading. So would you all pay careful attention today as we listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 14. This is Paul's defense. Paul said, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then in verse 21, Paul recall, recounts 
the defense he already made before these same accusers back in Jerusalem when he stood before the Sanhedrin and shouted, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. You see, Paul's singular message in the face of those who wanted to kill him and all like him was this, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Jewish faith had been given legal sanction by Rome, and by calling Paul the leader of a sect, they were implying that somehow the Christian faith was something altogether foreign to the Jewish faith, and it had no legal standing before a Roman court of law. They were insinuating that the Christian faith was like a cancerous tumor that needed to be killed, cut off, and thrown away, and they were encouraging this governor to let them have Paul to do their work. But Paul, in response to this accusation, said that the exact opposite of what they claimed was really the truth. Paul said that the belief in the resurrection from the dead is the very hope that all the patriarchs of the Jewish faith held and taught on the pages of the Old Testament. And you know what? The Apostle was absolutely right in his defense of the Christian faith on that day. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel 14, 14, Ezekiel said, Job was one of the three most righteous men who lived, whose life was found on the pages of the Old Testament, and it was Job's faith and trust and belief in the resurrection from the dead that sustained him through the darkest hours of his life. In Job, the 19th chapter, Job is lamenting the fact that all his family, that his friends, and now even his own wife had turned their backs on him. And yet in verses 25 through 27, Job revealed the source of his deepest hope when he said these words. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Isn't that wild what he knew all those thousands of years ago? Abraham was not only the father of the nation of Israel, but he was also called God's friend in the scripture. He also believed in the resurrection from the dead. The apostle Paul in Hebrews, the 11th chapter said, this is the very reason why he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering on the altar. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, Paul said that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. You see, Abraham believed that if even if he took this knife and ran it through his son's beating heart and reduced his son's body to ashes, that from those ashes, God would raise his son back to life again. And Abraham believed this because he had seen a similar miracle when Isaac was born in the first place. God had brought Isaac from the dead womb of his mother. Sarah, at 90 years of age, her reproductive track was, well, what shall we say? Kaput? Is that the word you'd use? It was dead, dead, dead. 
And yet from that dead womb sprang life in the form of Isaac, the son of promise. And it's fascinating. The Apostle Paul actually used Abraham's faith as a prototype of our own in Romans, the fourth chapter, because Abraham believed like we do in the resurrection of the dead. And finally, David, the great king of Israel, also believed in the resurrection of the dead. He had been promised by God that it was from his offspring that the Messiah and the Savior of the world would come. And at the end of Psalms 16, David revealed the source of his hope and his joy, not only for himself, but also for his future offspring, the Messiah, when he said this. He said, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul used this very passage of Scripture to prove that David himself indeed believed in the resurrection from the dead. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said that David was in fact a prophet and that the Holy One he spoke of was Jesus who had raised from the dead just 50 days earlier. Paul said in Antioch, that the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is proof that the Messiah had already come and that by his resurrection from the dead had provided assurance to all men of the resurrection. That's how Reese put it in his commentary. You see, there is a cause and effect relationship between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and our own resurrection from the dead because the Messiah would not remain in the grave, David knew that God himself would not abandon him to the grave either. You see, the Apostle Paul was absolutely right in his defense of the Christian faith in Acts, the 24th chapter. Far from being some weird off-the-wall sect, the belief in the resurrection from the dead is at the very heart of what all the patriarchs of the Old Testament believed and taught themselves. And it should be no surprise to find that same message at the very heart of what the Messiah himself taught when he was on the earth. In John the 11th chapter, Jesus was speaking to two sisters standing beside the tomb of their brother Lazarus, whom they loved. And to these grieving sisters, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then in order to prove that outrageous claim, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and gave him back alive to his two sisters. Isn't that cool? On John, the second chapter, we discover the fact that Jesus cleared the temple on more than one occasion. The apostle John said that at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus marched into the temple and knocked over the tables of the money changers and the merchants that he found there. He made such a huge spectacle on that day that the priests in charge of the temple pursued him as he was leaving. They stopped him and they said, by what authority 
Do you come into the very temple of God and act like you somehow own the place or something? And to them, Jesus gave this enigmatic reply. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Well, they laughed at him because they thought he was talking about the temple he had just cleared. But John makes it clear that the temple he was talking about was his own body. In Revelation 21, 22, Jesus is called the temple of God because as Paul told the Colossians, in him the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. You see, Jesus, when he was confronted with the question, by what authority do you do the things you do? Do you say the things you say? Do you promise the things you promise? Said this, you kill me. And in three days, you will see the authority that I really have. You know, rightly understood, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the greatest miracle found on the pages of the Bible. And man, there's a lot of great miracles found on the pages of the Bible, right? But Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the greatest of all the miracles because of all the resurrection of Jesus proves. For instance, how do we really know that Jesus was loved by God by his resurrection from the dead. In John the 10th chapter, Jesus said, the reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And how do we know that Jesus really is the divine son of God? Well, by his resurrection from the dead. Paul said in the introduction of his most famous letter, the book of Romans, that Jesus was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And how do we really know that Jesus will judge all mankind? As he said in Matthew, the 25th chapter, will by his resurrection from the dead. Paul said to the men of Athens, now he, meaning God, commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And finally, how do we really know that Jesus will raise his followers from the dead by his resurrection from the dead. The glorified Jesus appeared to the terrified apostle John on the island of Patmos. He put his hand on him and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, Hades, in this context, should have been translated grave, as it was in the Philip's paraphrase of that verse. You see, by virtue of his death and subsequent resurrection, 
He wrestled the keys from the devil and he uses those to free those he loves from both death and the grave. This is the very point that Paul himself makes in Hebrews, the second chapter, when he says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ our Lord made a frontal assault against Satan by voluntarily subjecting himself to death and then came out on the other side of death, having wrestled the keys from the dark Lord. And now he can and use those very keys to set free anyone and everyone who would become his disciple and give to them the gift of what? Life everlasting. Life that can never be taken away. Folks, this is the very reason why the resurrection of the dead is the very message that we should be sharing at this point in history when the enemies of Christ and his church are approaching even our back door. And the reason is obvious, isn't it? It's obvious, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for sending your son to suffer and die, not for anything that he had done wrong, but for everything we'd done wrong. And thank you, O Heavenly Father, that he conquered death and conquered the grave for us. Thank you for the incredible hope that we have in life beyond the grave. Lord, help us, strengthen us through your good spirit to be faithful to you and to proclaim this message In these dark days and during these dark hours, help us to be faithful to you and to your son. And we look forward to being together with you in a better world than this one. And to that end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.